in uh, Ezekiel chapter 8 and 9, continuing our, our journey uh, through Ezekiel. We're in a section of Ezekiel from, from uh, chapter 4 to 24 that deals with God's judgment against Israel and describing various aspects of that judgment. And specifically, now, from chapter 8 to 11, uh, the message is going to be to those in captivity about Jerusalem. So, as we've gone on, remember, Ezekiel is proclaiming his uh, visions to those in captivity, right? We talked last time, nobody has a cell phone, there's no Facebook. Nobody in Jerusalem can hear Ezekiel in Babylon. So, whatever word comes from Ezekiel to Jerusalem, by the time it got there, it would be far too late. In Jerusalem, Jeremiah is the prophet there. And he's taking care of things face to face with the people. Ezekiel's purpose is to talk to those who are in captivity. And one of the main things that we, he's, he's wanting to drive home for those in captivity is this idea that we see throughout the Old Testament where we come upon a generation that has failed to accomplish, uh, let's just say, has failed to accomplish God's uh, purpose, his goal for them, whatever. They've not achieved the, the things they could have under if they had been wholly surrendered to the Lord. And so they enter into a time of judgment, and that generation that enters into judgment, God always brings forth what he calls a remnant. And the purpose of the remnant is to prepare the next generation when they get the opportunity to be released from slavery, released from exile, to go back into the land. This next generation to come to Kadesh Barnea and once again be faced with the opportunity to, to walk by, by faith or to stumble in fear. So, so this is where we find ourselves. So those in captivity need to know a message from God to them that they're to prepare the next generation. And part of their struggle is they think they're the forsaken ones because they're the ones in exile. And the ones that God really has a purpose for are still in Jerusalem because Jerusalem will never fall. So part of Ezekiel's point is to drive home the idea Jerusalem is fallen and you are the remnant. It's this group that will become the next generation to go back to the land, to prepare to rebuild and reestablish the things that God has for them. So he's going to provide this proclamation, and we're going to see the glory of the Lord. His next three chapters, and primarily in chapter 10 next week, we're going to be look at uh, one of the <clears throat> important aspects that we need to understand, and that is the, the reality of the, of the uh, withdrawal of the kavod, the glory of God. The glory of God's going to leave the temple. And the next time I would say the glory of God returns is when Jesus stands and cleanses the temple. So that's a long span without the glory of God being in the temple. And that's an important thing for the people to understand. God's presence is leaving the place where he said, hey, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to put my name here and this will be where you can contact me, right? And everything was built around the temple, but New Testament, what has become the temple? That's right. You are the temple of God, right? That was, that was all part of the promise of the new covenant and the reality that God would be their God and they would be his people. The, the idea that, God doesn't need a building now. You are that building in which you can commune with the Lord. So these promises, the foundation of those steps that we come to in the New Testament get laid in, uh, in the visions of Ezekiel. So we'll take a look at it. We're going <clears> to, <throat> just for a moment, we're just, to, just so we have an understanding of the glory of God as we're about to uh, take a look at that in Ezekiel 8, we're going to just take a quick uh, jaunt to Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord. 
the Ahebawe, the Tetragrammaton, four consonants um, that was laid out before the people. So <clears throat> he said, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said to Moses, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the idea is, the Bible's going to tell us that Moses, unlike anybody else, spoke to God face to face. The idea is not, it's anthropomorphic. So what I mean by that is these are human terms to describe something that God's trying to get a point across. God the Father is spirit. He doesn't have a body. Jesus has a body. God the Father does not have a body. When he passes before Moses, he says, I'm going to let my afterglow drift past you that's all you can handle because if you had to look into my glory you could not survive the reason we cannot survive is because god is absolute perfection and you and i aren't we can't stand the heat in the kitchen so the lord is saying to moses i'm just going to let my glory pass by you he said i'm going to make a a crag in the rock here he says you will uh, there's a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Not cleft of the rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that's Jesus. Jesus is the rock. And what does he do so that <clears throat> Moses can see, apprehend, understand the glory of God? He puts him in a cleft in the rock. It's a picture of being put in Christ. How do we know anything about the Father? It's Jesus who gives us revelation of the Father. That's what the Bible declares. The only God in the bosom of the Father declares the Father to us, Jesus. And so he says he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand. Again, that's anthropomorphic, right? It's a, it's a figure of speech. God is spirit, not body. And I will cover you with my hand, and I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but not my face. You'll see the afterglow, the, the dust that kicks up when I go by. And so from that, we know Moses saw that, and his face shone, right? Forty days, his face shone because of the afterglow of the glory of God. So the glory of God is this incredible reality that the children of Israel had in the temple, there was no light in the Holy of Holies. You had the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God. Now, at some point during, ex during, uh, during Ezekiel's time, uh, I would say that the Holy of Holies was dark. And they didn't understand something had changed. So, he says in Ezekiel 8, verse 1, In the sixth year of the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what, was, what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 1, when he saw his vision of God, these are terms he used back in chapter 1. So what I want you to recognize here in these first four verses is you're going to see what a lot of people call, uh, early rabbis called the two powers in heaven. This comprehension that there was one God, but there, were more than, there was more than one representation of God. And you're going to see three of them <clears throat> in the first four verses. If you pay attention to what's going on, you will see, here he says, um, uh, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. I looked and I saw a form, the appearance of a man. So we would call this a Christophany, right? The uh, 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 pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. God manifest in the flesh, John chapter 1. This is God that will make the Father known, right? This is uh, what we would call the Son, Below what appeared to be his waist, fire above his waist, the appearance of brightness like gleaming metal. This is the fact that he is synonymous with God of chapter 1. It says, he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And then the spirit lifted me up. That's represent, representation 2. 
So when we talk about the doctrine of, of the Trinity, we talk about three in one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, you have the Son, an appearance of a man, and you have the Spirit lifting him up. Now I did think that this is a little bit, Ezekiel always had a little bit of a wild ride with the Lord, right? Because it says that uh, he appeared in the appearance of a man, his hand reaches out and grabs him by the hair and takes him to heaven. And the spirit lifted me to heaven. So I, I don't know what that was like. It reads like he getting drugged by his hair to heaven, right? And so he's laying out this, this idea. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So you have in these few verses, you, what I guess I want, want you to see Three manifestations of God with blurred distinctions. The, the distinctions aren't absolutely clear. It's like three different ways of describing God, um, which is going to develop into the doctrine of the Trinity further on down the line. But in the ancient rabbis, they called it the two powers in heaven. The different ways that God was represented uh, to the people. And so we see this presence, the presence of of the man, Ezekiel, what? Being taken to Jerusalem in spirit. <clears throat> Much like John in Revelation, right? That he was uh, taken in the spirit to the Lord's day. So you see this, this same thing here. The place Ezekiel is taken, Jerusalem. And what's the issue? Why is he taken to Jerusalem? Look what it says. To the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy? And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision I saw in the valley. So like the vision he saw at the beginning, this is 14 months later. He gave us the date and time. 14 months from chapter 1, we have what's going on in chapter 8. We have this idea that Ezekiel is taken to Jerusalem to see the image of jealousy, which is going to be an image of idolatry that is at the temple. And the point is, <clears throat> God says it is this image which provokes him to jealousy. Now, one of the things when we talk about God, one of the ways God describes himself as a jealous God. And we sometimes have difficulty in making that relation because for us, Jealousy sometimes is a negative emotion that doesn't have a basis. But when God's jealous, it's not a negative emotion that doesn't have a basis. When God's jealous is because we're unfaithful. Do you get the difference? In human terms, sometimes people are jealous without a foundation. You know, maybe there's never been anything happen, but you have people that struggle uh, with jealousy. But that's not what... the that's not the jealousy the Lord is talking about. He's talking about, you're cheating on me. You are unfaithful to me. In Exodus chapter 20, the Lord said, You shall not make for yourself any carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this is not talking about generational curses. What this is saying is <clears throat> God will not forget. He will constantly judge idolatry and unfaithfulness. He'll judge it next generation and the next generation and the next generation. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. So if, when we are unfaithful... It will drive the Lord to respond as a jealous God. Deuteronomy 32, 16. And they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. Verse 21 of Deuteronomy 32. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to an anger with their idols, so that I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So the Lord responding in Deuteronomy, what would happen if the children of Israel turned from faithfulness to Yahweh and, and turned toward other gods? Here, this will be my response. In 2 Kings <clears throat> chapter 21, 
we're going to read about uh, the last great king after which God said, uh, my judgment is coming. And that was King Manasseh. We talked about it. He's the worst king of them all. And he had the longest reign. If you remember, we shared about the fact that Manasseh, after he was taken captive by Assyria, repented and the Lord brought him back. But nonetheless, even though he repented, even though God forgave him, there were consequences to the idolatry that he established in the nation. This is not just one guy being idolatrous and God judging a nation. This is state-sanctioned idolatrous worship and God's judgment of the state. That's what's taking place in God's judgment over the nation. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. It's worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, Baal, Asherah. Uh, He built altars in the house of the Lord. That's in the temple. Of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. He used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of the Lord, in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house in Jerusalem will I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So when we look at those, right at the end of verse 4, or verse 3, he says that the Lord brought Ezekiel to the image of jealousy, to this idolatrous idol that was placed in the temple, at the altar, that the Lord says, now Ezekiel, you want to understand why my judgment has come. So the Lord in the spirit is taking Ezekiel to Jerusalem to show him. And then he can, in this vision, relate to those who are in captivity. This is why Jerusalem's falling. This is why these things are are going to end. Now he goes on in verse 5. Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north. And behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. So this is the image of Asherah. Asherah that Manasseh put up there within the temple walls. And he said, um, verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see still greater abominations. Now, one of the things that's important for us to understand, especially when we talk about idolatry, we don't always carry the correlation across to understand that this is the way God describes within a marriage unfaithfulness, an unfaithful spouse, a spouse that cheats, a husband who cheats on his wife, a wife who cheats on her husband. And the reality is, this is my home where I live and you have your boyfriend there, right inside my house. Or you have your girlfriend there, right inside my house. Then the Lord's saying, I don't want to be there. Why, why do I want to be in that house? Why do I want to be in that place? The, these are the terms, the illustrations that God uses to describe idolatry so that we can comprehend what idolatry is all about. He goes on in verse 7. So he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw and there 
engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. Now here's the point. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. The point is that all the leadership of the nation of Israel was wholly committed to idolatry. As he crawls through this, this hole in the wall, some people have described this as, as God taking Ezekiel into the very minds of the leadership of Israel. And there, on the walls of their minds, deeply engraved, is all these pictures of all these idols. And before all of these idols are all the elders. Now, one of the things you need to understand You know, the Lord was always busting the chops of Israel for going to other places to get help rather than coming to him. You remember these things? In in the book of Kings, you can read about it, Chronicles. Why do you go to Egypt and not come to me? And every time they would go to another nation and they would come to that nation and they would say, hey, we want you to protect us. Usually what went with that peace treaty was uh, idols, well, yeah, we'll help you, but you don't, you don't worship Ra. So you need to set up a temple to Ra. And if you set up a temple to Ra and establish opportunities to worship the deities of our country, of our place, then we'll help you. And so in order to get their help, you see this with Solomon. Solomon built multiple temples. Some of those temples, the scriptures say he built for his wives. What were those wives? Every one of those thousand wives that he took was a different peace treaty with a different nation to to organize and put together this kingdom that that he was building. And, and, And going against directly what the Lord had said, don't multiply wives, but he multiplied wives. And with them came temples, came idols. And so what are the leadership? Those people who are making the decision for the nation of Israel... What are they doing? They are given wholeheartedly to idolatry, not to God. They are fully focused on this idolatrous, and in fact, the Lord's going to name them. Verse 11, and before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand. The smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, son of man, Have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say the Lord does not see us. For the Lord has forsaken this land. So they say God God doesn't know what we're doing. God doesn't know what's going on in our minds. What's going on in the dark places that he can't see. Yet the Lord took Ezekiel by the hair and brought him into that place. He showed him the idolatry right outside the temple. He brought them in to the minds of the leaders of the nation of Israel to show them where their minds were, where their focus was, what they were directed to. So when we look at this and we understand the secret chambers of the leadership, we see an extensive pollution. When we talk about when the Lord's saying, why is this happening? Why is the glory of the Lord going to depart by chapter 10? Why do we see these things happening? It's because of the defilement of the temple. And it's because of the, the uh, um, idolatry in the secret chambers, in the minds of the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16, It says this, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven. And you be drawn away and bow down to them to serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. So this is exactly what 
the leadership in, the, in, the, in Judah, in the nation of Israel, was doing. And the fact that the elders were all present, that was signifying all the leaders. Here they are. And their attitude was, God can't see us. God's not here. He has forsaken us. So we must go to these other gods. Now what you need to understand about that, there's a level of frustration, right, between the leadership saying, well, we're praying and God's not giving us what we want. So God has forsaken us because he's not giving us what we want. So we're going to go to all the other gods and we're going to try to get what we want. Because in the reality is that in the minds of men, they had decided this is the way God works and this is what God must accomplish. And so he must deliver us. He must save the temple. He must save the city. But what God was doing was disciplining his people for idolatry. And rather than receiving the correction of, of God, they were rebelling against the correction of God and going in unfaithfulness to anybody else who would maybe give them what they want. You ever experienced any people like that? You know, they want what they want, how they want it, the way they want it, and when you say, no, I don't really think that's the best thing for you, and so they leave you and they go to somebody else to try to get what they want. <clears throat> and they repeat it and they repeat it and they repeat it again. So these are the rebellious people of Judah. Now in verse 13, he says, And he said to me, still showing them the abominations, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. So Tammuz was a god who died in winter and was resurrected in the spring. And so the idea is he would be mourned. He would be mourned when it was winter and there was no plants, things weren't going on. And they would mourn him in the spring so that he would come back from death. And when he came back from death, then the plants would grow again. And that was the cycle, the the, the cycle of uh, the harvest cycle. And so <clears throat> God's people traditionally, the Lord would say, hey, I'm, you, you stay faithful to me. I'll bring the early and the later rains and you will have all the crops that you need. But the people, because they're not getting what they want from the Lord, now the women are participating in the worship of Tammuz. And one of the ways they worshiped Tammuz was to weep for him when he died and to weep for him to bring him back in the springtime. And so the women are doing this at the temple, right? The north gate of the house of the Lord. This is all taking place at the temple. It's not taking place in their homes. It's not taking, it may be taking place there too, but the Lord's problem is this is all happening at my house by the leadership of the nation in the place where it's supposed to be my home. And all of these different uh, attitudes of unfaithfulness are in these places. He's not done yet. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, Worshiping the sun toward the east. Now there's two things that you need to understand here. One, it's participating in idolatry, worshiping the hosts of heaven. And two, it is putting your back to the Lord. So their backs to the temple, their face to the sun, their back is to Yahweh in his house, in the temple, as they are worshiping the sun. Um, he goes on in verse 17. Then he said, have you seen this, O son of man? 
Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So as we get to the end of chapter 8, the Lord is saying, this is a reason for my wrath. Now, overall, multiple times in Scripture, we see pictures of what we call eschatologically the day of the Lord. When we talk about the book of Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, the finally all evil being put down, righteousness reigning, we are talking about what the Bible describes as the day of the Lord. The judgment on Jerusalem was the day of the Lord. The judgment on Babylon, the Bible describes as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment in which God's wrath is poured out. And in this case, it's God's wrath poured out on the nation of Judah for their disobedience, for their unfaithfulness. Because though they are Israel described as God's wife, though they are his wife, in multiple ways, in God's home, they have cheated on God with all these other idols. Running under every green tree. That's how God describes it. Going after all these others. And the Lord's like, why, why do you even want me there? <laughs> all, of this, all of this activity says you don't want me. And so I'm going to leave. We'll see that in chapter 10. I'm going to leave. I'm going to depart. And I'm going to pour out my wrath. I'm going to take away all that I blessed you with. All that I gave you. Why does Israel have the land? They have the land because God gave it to them. Why did the Canaanites not have the land? Because God took it from the Canaanites. Why did God take it from the Canaanites? Because they did the same thing Israel's doing now. Whose land is it? God's. So that this is the way that the Lord is describing it. The, the absence of God's grace, the pouring out of God's wrath, the land being filled with violence, and then ultimately God's silence. They cry out, but he doesn't hear them. In fact, he says to Jeremiah, tell them to pray to all those idols. Let them save them. Now he goes on in chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. And he said, bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. <clears throat> and behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them stood a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. So you're going to have this description of seven men, ultimately, that God is calling forth. This is part of the vision of Ezekiel. He's there in Jerusalem. He's been into the minds of the leaders. He's seen into the temple, the idolatry everywhere around the temple, the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. And so now the Lord God is calling, and in the vision he sees, coming before him, he has six men that are going to pour out God's wrath, and one who is the accountant. One that's going to do the accounting, and six that are going to bring the judgment. These may be pictures of angels, but the Bible clearly calls them men within the vision. Um... The man clothed in linen possibly could be a Christophany. The man clothed in linen in chapter 8 was described, right, a fire below his waist and something like molten bronze above. So the glory of the Lord in the picture was described about him in chapter 8. But we don't see that description here in chapter 9. So there's some question uh, about the identity of the man with the writing case at his waist. But here's what takes place. They went in and stood by the bronze altar. 
So the bronze altar, right beside the bronze altar is where the ashram is. That was the, that was the ashram pole that, that Manasseh had installed at the temple. So where you came to bring your sacrifice for Yahweh, right there was this <clears throat> image of jealousy, right, that the Lord described. And so they come to that altar. They come to that altar, the place wherein the, the, the atonement would be brought for the people. They come to the place of the altar where, where God would, because of the sacrifice and the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, he would withstall his judgment for the failures of men. All being a picture of what Christ is going to accomplish at the cross. And all of these things, as they're there in the midst, right outside the door of the temple, right beside the bronze altar, here are the six men. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested <coughs> to the threshold of the house. So the glory of God is starting to move. He's leaving the cherub, and now he's at the threshold of the door. So you see the glory of God. There's the temple of God in the vision. There's a temple of God. It's a rectangle. The Holy of Holies on top of the Holy of Holies is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant on which was fashioned cherub, which was the place where the glory of God would rest, God's throne. And he would rest there, that glory. And now the glory has left the cherub and it's come to the threshold of the door where you would be able to clearly see the bronze altar right outside the door where the six men are gathered and the seventh man with his notepad. And it says, And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So God tells this man, who is the man keeping the tally like a record, if you want to, you could almost describe that the record that he's carrying as, well, a book. Uh, maybe a book of life. You heard of that before? And he says, go throughout the city and find all the people in the city whose hearts have been vexed by the things that have taken place. They sigh and they groan. You know, that's the exact same language that is used of Lot. You know, when we look at Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels come in judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah and they say to Lot, the judgment of God cannot fall as long as you're here. And God calls Lot, who you and I would say maybe was a dirtbag. God says he's a righteous man. Why? Because he sighed and groaned over all the sin of the city. His heart was, was broken over. Was his performance perfect? No. Neither is yours. Nor mine. But the Lord says, is his heart vexed by the sin? Does he groan over the sin? And so this one goes through all the city. And he's going to mark them. He's going to mark them. The, the, the word for mark is he's going to put the tav. He's going to put a tav. Some people describe tav like a cross. It's kind of, it looks more, a little more like an X to me than a cross. But if you ever saw um, any of the, uh, what was that crazy books they made, babe? Oh, look, you knew them. <laughs> if you ever saw any of the movies, sometimes they talked about it, talked about it in the book, certainly. But it's, the idea is taken from Ezekiel. And so, <clears throat> first, the mark is given. One of the things that we need to understand about the judgment of God, please hear this. God knows how to carry the righteous through and deliver the wicked to judgment. God knows how. 
He does not have to pass his plan by me or you or any other council. The Lord knows how. And the way this is being described is God saying, this mark, you will be spared. Everybody else, sword, famine, pestilence. Three of the four riders of the apocalypse. Right? We talked about that last time in Revelation. Sword, pestilence, famine. The only reason it's not four is because the first writer of the apocalypse is the Antichrist. But the judgments God brings, sword, pestilence, famine. Now look at verse 5. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye will not spare, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, children and women. Touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Probably this is not the picture you have in your mind when you think judgment begins. Where? In the house of the Lord. Go mark the faithful and judge the rest. Now one of the things that this is going to describe that's important for the people there in captivity that Ezekiel is delivering it to is that they are among the faithful because they were spared the judgment. It's almost synonymous with saying God has marked you. Remember I told you those who were in slavery were like, God hates us. God's mad at us. This is, we're the ones God's judging. We're the ones God is trying to destroy because here we are and this life is hard. If God loved us, we'd be in Jerusalem because Jerusalem will never fall. The temple will never be destroyed. But you and I know history, right? The temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem does absolutely fall. And all the people uh, who stay and fight and don't surrender perish. And there's nothing here to indicate how many were marked and how many were not. But if they were not marked, they were struck by the wrath of God. The wrath of God poured out, and it did not matter who they were. Old men, young men, women, children... Then he said to them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, and leave. So they went out and struck the city. So he defiles, I want you to hear this word. He defiles the temple with the slain. The dead defile the temple. You remember Jesus' words when he left the temple area? See, your house is left to you desolate. It's defiled. The glory of God's going to come back to the temple, but they're still rejecting the glory of God, right? And then the sacrifice of God is going to provide a way. The atonement through Jesus Christ. It says, now, while they were striking, and I was left alone, this is Ezekiel speaking, I fell on my face and I cried. If you look at the book of Revelation, after Armageddon, after the destruction of the wicked, do you know what the Bible says? And he will wipe away all your tears. Because if you are among the faithful, nobody is celebrating the day of judgment. They are mourning. They're, they are weeping. He falls on his faith. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? This is what Ezekiel is saying. Are the righteous destroyed along with the wicked? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood. The city full of injustice. 
For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for my eye, it will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. God's judgment will be complete. You want to know what it looks like? Read Revelation 19. It's right there. Anytime before a battle, the Lord says, I want all the birds. Call all the birds to the feast of the great God where they can eat the flesh of the great men because they're all going to perish. The wicked are destroyed. Then verse 11, And behold, the man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist brought back word and said, I have done as you commanded me. Remember what he was doing? He's marking the righteous, the saint, the faithful. Is God able to deliver the righteous and the wicked? <clears throat> one to judgment, one to salvation? What does the Bible say? You are not appointed unto wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not appointed unto wrath. Will the wrath of God fall on the wicked? Yes. Will the wrath of God fall on the righteous? No. Does that mean you won't be hungry? No. Does that mean you won't be a slave? No. Does that mean you won't lose everything? No. Because none of those things are the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God saying to those six men, take those weapons of destruction and wipe everybody out. Being a slave was better. It was how the Lord delivered the next generation. And then the word to the next generation is don't make these mistakes. Don't walk in wickedness. Don't, don't walk in rebellion. Hear these things that I have been saying for generation after generation after generation. And does God's judgment fall on every generation? No. No. This is seven generations of sin that goes that brings the judgment of God. 490 years. 490 years of long-suffering, of reaching out all day long in Romans 11, right? All day long I lift out my hands, I reach out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But the point is God will judge wickedness. He will judge rebellion. He will deliver the righteous and he will deliver the wicked. The wicked to judgment, the righteous to salvation. How does he describe that in the Bible? He delivers the righteous to life and the wicked <clears throat> to death. How does he describe it in Proverbs? The path of life and the path of Death. Don't walk this path. It leads to death, destruction, the judgment of the wicked. Walk on this path. Why? Because it leads to life. Or the path of the fool. Or the path of the wise. The ideas are all the same. Synonymous as we look at the, the metaphors that are used throughout Scripture. The point is... To walk with the Lord in the cool of the evening, just like Adam did. Walk with the Lord all the days of your life, like Enoch did and was not, for God took him. To walk with the Lord, example after example after example. Walk with the Lord. Walk with, does it matter? Yes, it matters. Do you know when the generation comes where the next day of the Lord will descend? And God's judgment will come? I don't. 
So what, did, what does the word tell us? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now is the time to be made right. We don't have to go to a temple. The Lord hears us because of the blood of Christ. We are able to have that right relationship with the Lord God Almighty. And we ought to be pursuing that. As a people, we may very well be finding ourselves in a period of exile. A generation put down to raise up the next generation for the, for the things that they're going to face. Because of our failures, we find ourselves where we are today. It's our job to make sure the next generation is prepared, that they stand, that they understand, to pour out the wisdom of the lessons learned so that they're able to walk and be who God's calling them to be. So their generation's ready. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We study your word. Thank you for what Ezekiel's laying out for us. The idea of the <clears throat> judgment of God being poured out and the beginning of the leaving of the glory of God. As God's glory is going to depart from the place he said he would set his name because his house is not his house anymore. See then, your house is left to you desolate. But that doesn't mean God's purpose was done. God's purpose now moves to a group of exiles, slaves who thought God had no purpose for them. There was nothing they could do. What can we do? We're, we're slaves. We can't even make our own decisions out of our own day. Yet the Lord had a prophet in their midst to declare to them his purpose, his plan. He's going to pour out incredible, incredible prophecies that they might know and understand how to prepare for the generation that would come back to the land. The generation that would enter into the walls of Jerusalem again, that would build the temple that Jesus would walk into. It would rebuild the city and the walls that would stand side by side to reestablish their grip, their culture in a world that was against everything that they were about. God, I pray that you would help us learn the lesson that history teaches. That we might understand the times and be men and women who know what to do about it. And Lord, may you be glorified in it and through it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.